This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Lisa Hashong to talk about her book, Visual Delight in Architecture, Daylight Vision and View. Lisa is an architect and founding principal of the Hashong Mahone Group, a building science consulting firm, and is a fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society. Lisa, thank you for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, um, I'm a California girl. I grew up in Los Angeles and went to college at Berkeley during the revolution uh, back in the 70s, and then made my way to Boston to go to graduate school in architecture, worked in New Hampshire for a couple of years, and then made my way back to California, where I have been for the last 40 plus years. Um, I got very involved in passive solar design back in the early part of my career, and during the energy crisis of the early 80s. And then I realized that in designing passive solar buildings, I was also designing daylight buildings and became progressively more and more interested in the implications and the opportunities of daylighting to the point where it really has defined my career for 40 years now. both as a designer and then subsequently as a researcher and now as an author. Uh, so I've, I've been doing deep dives into daylighting for decades. Very interesting. And I'll kind of circle back to that. So first question, as, so as I mentioned to you before this, uh, before I do these interviews, I usually share what books I'm reading with a, a certain friend of mine. And they had the comment that I think would be a great place to start of how is a book over 350 pages when it's about windows and light? And so, I think that's a great way to dive right into the overall theme of the book and maybe how often overlooked the subject is. 
Well, I think that's a great question. And a lot of people are surprised at the size of this book. Um, I wrote an earlier book called Thermal Delight, which is still in publication. Um, it's very small. It's a, a little book of essays, much beloved. And people <laughs> wonder, like, why is this book so much bigger? Um, I found that from my early work doing research into daylighting, that daylighting very early got adopted into green buildings and sustainable buildings, and it became a centerpiece, really, and a hook to bring people into those new areas that they understood intuitively why daylighting was important and they would embrace it. But then the conversation sort of stalled out. Um, daylighting became something that was a, a given. It was taken for granted. Um, I would hear so many conversations or, or read other books that would say, and of course, daylighting is very important. End of discussion. Um, it was basically being taken for granted, but not understood on a deeper level. And so I felt that there was a need to extend that conversation and help people understand how many ways daylighting and views are fundamental to our built environment and connect the dots to so many other aspects of our lives that daylighting and views touch on. Hence my interest in public health and cognitive science. Um, the book is not only about architectural design, it's also about landscape design, urban design, interior design, public health, um, how people stay healthy within environments. Um, and so there are a lot of topics to cover. Yes, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. You, you mentioned that we take it for granted. You know, I, I, I personally feel like I have a very large bookshelf of architectural resources and books. And as I hinted, I believe I only have two, now a third one that focuses on light, which is, you know, as you said, very important. And yet it's not exactly being treated that way. And, you know, I, I, I have already, you already told me this story. I'd love to hear you tell our viewers about how the reality is most buildings being built, lighting is the last thing being dealt with. And it has, again, I don't want to take the quote from you, but it's not treated as an integral part of the design. It's more of an afterthought. Well, yeah, I could I could share lots of quips along those lines. I had a mechanical engineer once who said to me, like, well, how complicated can lighting be? It's just a load. <laughs> um, and relative to, oh, another one um, that came up recently as I was talking with a friend who does certifications for academic professional programs. And he reported that at one school that he was evaluating, the students across their entire professional education spent one hour learning about light. Yeah. <laughs> Not just daylight, but electric light and daylight combined into one hour. That was the full extent of their professional curriculum on lighting, um, which of course I think is a travesty. Um, and one of the things that I hope for with this book is that if students read it, 
they will start to fall in love with the subject. It is so rich and so deep and so connected to everything else that we do as architects, um, both technology and history and philosophy. Uh, for me, it's hard not to fall in love with it. Absolutely. I agree. And so, you know, you kind of, again, you mentioned it. I actually, I'll be honest, I teach a class on mechanical systems. And so while I, I believe I try to make it clear that the, the idea is not to force a big AC unit to make your building work, there is a lot of orientation and sunlight strategy. I think uh, it can be, it's pretty clear that maybe that message isn't getting across to a lot of programs or students, as you just said. And so that kind of goes into the next question I'd love to talk about. And that is, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk about this idea of biophilia and technophilia. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that a little more for us. Biophilia has been become an extremely popular um, topic. Um, and it really captures people's imagination in terms of how we might be designing spaces that include more nature. But what does that really mean? You know, what is nature? And that is not particularly well defined. It's not particularly well understood how much, what qualities, where, when, how um, is really important. And it's difficult to research this without clear definitions. On the flip side, in our society, we have a lust for technology and for technological solutions. And so people inevitably come up with, well, we can't actually get real nature into these buildings. And so maybe we can do a simulation. Maybe we can add a video or, you know, what, what is good enough that we can provide as a technological solution that might provide this connection to nature that we want. And so I explore that quite a bit in one of the chapters of the book, looking at research, both in terms of technological solutions and also looking more historically in terms of what our understanding of nature per se is and how that can be brought into buildings. I see the two concepts as two ends of a spectrum, perhaps, and yet there is a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and I, I think it behooves us to understand both a little bit more deeply. It's, and it's interesting. I, the study was int very interesting to me. I mean, all of them are, but I, I, as a practicing architect, I've sat through quite a few lunch and learns about companies who have simulated lighting screens or uh, rooftop skylights that are, you know, digital projections. And, you know, they seem very convincing. They seem to sell it a little bit. But based on the study you provide, if I'm understanding it correctly, those are better than sitting in a windowless basement, but they do not provide the same advantages of a, of a real window, just simply looking outside. Is that correct? Yes. People that have explicitly tried to study the benefits of simulated versus actual nature have repeatedly found that, well, something is better than nothing, that the actual nature provides measurable physiological benefits that aren't seen with the simulated substitutes. Um, and so I, I think we could start thinking of some of these simulated substitutes as placebos, 
you know, they kind of make us feel better that we're getting something, um, but they're not really having the same physiological impacts. Very interesting. As I said, uh, as after sitting through quite a few presentations, it's good to hear that from the other side, because I don't believe it's being sold that way. Well, I, I think being sold is, is really the key. Um, you know, Mother Nature doesn't have a business plan. <laughs> you know, she's not out there conducting lunch and learns. Um, it's the people who are trying to sell new products and have a sales strategy that are aggressively trying to sell their products. Um, and so one of the ways that you could look at this book is that is me trying to help um, Mother Nature along as a sales strategy. I'm trying to do a little bit more marketing for her. And that's a great point. You know, I, I believe you even have the term I wrote down, you know, selling daylight. Obviously, there's immense you know, psychological and physical benefits to daylight. But sadly, sometimes that's just not enough. Whereas when dealing with clients, the bottom, the bottom line usually is money. And I think a really good case is brought forth by you that there's a, there's a lot of financial benefits, too, if you need to look at it that way. The one I think our, it, the listeners would be very interested in hearing about is kind of what I, the Walmart Skylight study that was inadvertently providing research for this. Um, well, let, let me say that there's not what I would call a Walmart Skylight study. Um, I never studied Walmart, and I make that explicit in the book, but I also do reveal the other businesses that I did study that were previously um, kept highly confidential. Um, Walmart was one of the early adopters of skylighting, and they worked with Southern California Edison to um, optimize a skylighting design for their buildings, and then they improved on it, and they took it global, um, and they hugely transformed the skylighting industry just by upping the market substantially for high-performance skylights. And other architects and engineers were willing to learn from their demonstrations. So they did have a very big effect on the industry, um, but I never studied Walmart per se, um, and they're not really part of most of those published studies. Okay, and so... You had mentioned, though, that you had done some concrete research into other retail, kind of providing the value. I mean, would you be willing to share that information with us? Yes. Well, there was a there was a story about Walmart's first Skylit building in the Wall Street Journal back in 1994 that caught my attention. And it basically said that products were falling off the flying off the shelf. Products were flying off the shelf. Um, in one half of a Walmart that had skylights and the other half of the Walmart that didn't have skylights were comparable to other stores. I used that Wall Street Journal story to help get me funding to actually do a quantitative study with another store chain. Um, and when those results came out, they were astonishing what we found. Um, this was a grocery store in Southern California that had 107 stores, I believe is the number, and or maybe it was 125. And what we found was that their Skylit stores were selling 40% more product than a comparable store, same size, same demographics, that didn't have Skylights. 
which is an astonishing number. Absolutely. Um, and frankly, that number was too high for most people to fully believe it. So then we got funding to do a second study of a second retailer that was using skylights in California. This one was a hardware store. And again, we found that more skylights resulted not only in more sales, but also higher revenues to the stores that had skylights. And that study was very detailed um, and had even more um, controls to make sure that we weren't confusing our results with other influences. Right. And yet, because I needed to keep the participants in those studies confidential, that was the conditions of being able to have access to their information, um, it didn't have as much impact as other studies that I did looking at the performance of school children in daylit classrooms or the performance of office workers in daylit offices. Interesting. And so you mentioned schools. And so you know, obviously, I, th- I think the evidence points to the advantage in retail. I can think of quite a few stores I go into that don't have any light. So maybe that's just a very slow upturn. But you make the point that of all the building types, schools, even though they're not as financially focused, seem to have taken the advantages and almost the passion of lighting design much more successfully than any other building type. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, absolutely. I mean, my my first school study came out, and when it was finally made public, it was on the um, Associated Press wires all over the world the next day, you know, and I was getting phone calls from Russia and Australia and South Africa. Um, so the the response to that study was astonishing. And very quickly, school architects started to embrace daylight as an important feature of a high-performance school. Um, I think it's because everyone agrees that the health and well-being of students is part of our responsibility. And that, of course, we want school buildings to be as healthy and supportive of those students' well-being as possible. Unfortunately, we don't have the same attitude towards workers in office buildings or in stores or in transit facilities. Um, They've got to put up with whatever we give them. So studies are just as compelling that workers benefit greatly from daylight and view. The benefits, as I try to document in the book, are so comprehensive on so many levels um, that it's clear to me that it's a benefit for workers. And I would like that to become more of a policy that this is a human right, that all people should have access to daylight and views in their everyday lives, Um, that it's not something that's just saved for the wealthy that can afford the penthouse. Okay, so it's interesting that you mention the health benefits of it, because as you say in the book, and one thing I would see is that a lot of retailers know this information, but they're not really using it as much, whereas schools seem to have kind of hit the ground running and are pretty passionate about the importance of daylight design. Well, yes, and it became very clear to me that our society in general 
cares a lot about the health of children. And we understand on a gut level that we're responsible for keeping kids healthy and we need to give them a healthy place to go to school. We don't have as much of a social value on keeping employees healthy. Um, There's much more focus on financial structures rather than the health and well-being of employees. That is probably going to change a great deal after the past year of COVID pandemic. We've heard so much about the importance of natural ventilation in buildings. Um, And we're beginning to realize that as humans, we spend 90% of our lives indoors. We need to design our buildings to provide the healthiest and most productive environment possible. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that there will be a turnaround also relative to the importance of daylighting and views and how that contributes to health and well-being also. And so that brings up an interesting point. You know, almost every aspect of our building is very rigidly you know, guided with policies and building codes and regulations. And so one thing I thought that was very interesting uh, towards the beginning of the book is, you know, you have a kind of an anecdote about the building codes really don't deal with uh, this as a human right as much as they should. And so I'd love for you to share with us your experience with trying to get this into the building code a little more. Uh, well, um, guilty as charged. Um, a great deal of my career was spent helping to develop building codes, most especially Title 24 in California, but Uh also ASHRAE and other codes and standards. And some of the more advanced codes, especially um, the high-performance codes, do incorporate aspects of daylight, um, but not terribly robustly and views are lagging even further behind. Um, So my hope is that this book will help um, prompt more research, uh, more evidence gathering that will really support um, a greater understanding of how we can do this um, efficiently and cost-effectively and still create the best possible environments for everybody, both in their workplaces, their homes, their schools, their hospitals, across all building types. Um, So that's something for the future, I hope, is improvements in our codes that recognize the importance of these healthy aspects of buildings. I hope so as well. I I think uh, you make a point that uh, it'll be even more relevant more, there's more population migration towards urban centers. I think you even call it kind of the this war of towers. Everyone's trying to build denser and taller buildings. So if this isn't taken into consideration, we're just going to make even more uncomfortable urban environments without thinking about it. Yeah, the, the pressures are only going to become more intense. We know the population is going to go up. And as cities become more populous, they become denser, they become taller, it's harder and harder to achieve these kinds of goals. And therefore, there really have to be policy steps that ensure that we preserve as much access to daylight and views for all building types. Um, It's also important to recognize that 
buildings change occupancy over time. They last for a long time. And we can't just optimize buildings for one use. Um, after the COVID epidemic, we've seen office buildings across our cities empty out, and yet there's a housing crisis. Um, and so many people are unhoused or underhoused. So I would guess that a lot of those office buildings are going to be converted over into housing. And what does that mean in terms of access to daylight and view and how to make those new uses as healthy as possible? We need buildings that have a loose fit and a long life and can be easily repurposed for many reasons. And daylighting and views are frankly one of the keys to making that work well. And if you even bring a point across that, you know, in real estate, there's that old saying that it's location, location, location. However, countless study has shown that views are probably just as important for most potential buyers and designers. Yeah, we've got lots of studies that show that people are paying as much for a view as they're paying for everything else about the building, the location, all the other physical amenities. So for some crazy reason... Having a view is valued as much as all those other aspects of a building. What does that tell you? It tells you that there's something pretty fundamental going on. Absolutely. And so, of course, there's so much science that goes into all this, and I'd, I'd hate to take up all day quizzing you on it. So uh, one thing I always like to ask guests is, you know, since the book has been published, uh, what, what, what have you been working on? What is occupying your time, even amidst this COVID pandemic? Well, what I'm working on is moving forward on, on that whole agenda and helping connect other people that are working on this. There's so many disciplines that are involved, and um, the architects don't know the landscape architects. The public health officials working on greenery don't know the cognitive scientists working on daydreaming. Um, and so trying to bring all of those perspectives into one conversation um, is really what I'm focusing on trying to achieve in the next few years. So Sounds I'm involved fun. in a number of other committees that are, are trying to make those connections. Well, no small task. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure, and um, I hope to uh, get more feedback from some of your listeners. Absolutely. And to everyone listening, the book is Visual Delight in Architecture. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.